0: Hello and welcome to The Week in 60 Minutes, brought to you by Spectator TV and broadcast on Thursday, the 26th of May. I'm Kate Andrews, the Spectator's economics editor and your host this week. Now on to the show. The Sue Gray report came out yesterday. Boris Johnson looks to be in the clear, and the Chancellor has unveiled a big spending package to address the cost of living crisis. Katie Balls and James Forsyth will join me. Ann Williams writes in this week's cover piece about the new front line, Taiwan. What lessons has Taiwan learned from the war in Ukraine? He'll be on the show with Emma Ashford. We'll have a sneak preview of tomorrow's Women with Balls episode. Katie Ball speaks to Frances Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower. And finally, Rod Little will be on the show. Is technology ruining our attention spans? But before we get going, a very special thank you to Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, who are sponsoring the week in 60 Minutes. Canaccord are experienced wealth planners and investment managers who go above and beyond to offer you support and guidance. Just visit candowealth.com to find out more. Now, first up, Sucre has finally published her report into number 10's lockdown parties. How damning were her findings? And what's Boris Johnson's plan to move the story on? I'm joined now by James Forsyth, our political editor, and Katie Balls, our deputy political editor. James and Katie, thanks so much for joining me. So it's been a big week in Westminster. First, of course, Sue Gray finally dropped her report into the lockdown parties happening in Downing Street. James, can you tell us a bit what's in the 37 pages uh, that we've had to read and what they mean for the prime minister?
1: It's a fairly grim compendium of the events that took place in Downing Street and the Cabinet Office that shouldn't have taken place uh, during the various COVID lockdowns. There are messages from Martin Reynolds, Boris's Principal Private Secretary at the time, talking about, you know, I think we got away with it, about a a gathering in the garden. It it is a fairly unedifying list. You know there There are people drinking too much and being sick. There's a minor altercation. But what it does not contain, I think, is any... Uh, new revelation that has put the skids under Boris Johnson. I think, and I think that is why, uh, you know, 24 hours on from the publication of this report, we've only seen three more, three new Tory MPs come out calling for Boris Johnson to go.
0: Yes, Katie, it feels like while some of the report is utterly damning into the behaviour happening inside Downing Street during lockdown, uh, the Prime Minister seems to have yet again gotten away with it.
2: Well, I think it's partly because this report has been a long time in the making. So what does the report tell us that people hadn't already heard some semblance of? And therefore there are embarrassing details. James just outlined some. I think the one passage that's particularly worrying Tory MPs is this idea that cleaning staff um, were treated badly by number 10 um, political officials um, in that sense and then also just details such as a number 10 staff leaving past 4am not because they were working late um, but because they were drinking and partying Um, and then also you add things such as um, ahead of that um, uh, bring your own booze garden party uh, a message went around suggesting that given this press conference was just wrapping up telling people not to socialize people should be a bit careful and refrain from waving bottles of wine around so all these things bring more color to it but i think generally speaking there's not really you know a sense of a new event a new thing which um changes it there's some questions of whether there's a bit of a cover-up going on in the sense that the alleged downing street flat party which is uh, said, you know, AIDS that they heard um, ABBA music playing the night that Dominic Cummings left um, from the Downing Street flat. That actually wasn't really investigated in any great detail. Uh, and I think there are some questions about that. But so I think a few of the a few things which have made people feel, um, you know, very uncomfortable. And of course, a trickle of people calling for Boris Johnson to go that, that could become something. You know, you don't know when you could hit that. Um, 54 letters by which you get a confidence vote. But I think, in a way, had this report come out in January or February, perhaps it would have been the final nail in the coffin for Boris Johnson. But because it has been pushed and pushed, I think the Prime Minister has used that time fairly effectively in terms of shoring up his position with Tory MPs, I and mean, that he was in a a, a more uh, secure position when it when it came out. Um, I don't think it's out of the woods yet, but it definitely feels right now as though uh, this is not uh, something which is going to lead to the end of his premiership at this stage.
0: Now, James, the chancellor uh, in the Commons today has announced a huge new support package to help people with the cost of living crisis, 15 billion pounds uh, of new spending in total. Uh, We know he's been planning on announcing something for some time. So it's not to say that this is linked to the UK report. One might note the timing is slightly interesting, however. Um, Can you talk us through a bit about what the chancellor has announced?
1: Yeah, so there is 400 pounds for every household. And then there is an enhanced support of £650 for the 8 million most vulnerable households. And what that essentially means is that for those households, the government is, a, is when you add all the various packages together, picking up for them the, the vast majority of the increase in energy costs, uh, and it is more generous than simply uprating benefits would have been. Uh, how are they paying for this? Well, the whole the, the package isn't fully funded, but the, the biggest funding mechanism involved is uh, what they are calling an excess profits levy, uh, in other words known as a windfall tax. Uh, and that raises over £5 billion on, on oil and gas companies. Uh, and that raises over £5 billion. That means it's raising more than twice what uh, Labour's windfall tax I- is aiming to raise. Now, this is obviously going to be the most controversial element of the package in uh Tory circles, there will be, uh, you know, uh, intellectual economists who, who, who don't like it. I, I think the I think what the justification for it is is, is twofold, really. One is that uh, these profits are not coming from something the, the companies have done. They've not they've not in, in, created a more innovative way of of extracting oil and gas. It, it, these profits are a result of Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine and what that has done to European regional energy prices. And I, think, and I think the second argument is this, is that this sector is not a sector that is a stranger to government intervention. Uh, you had government support packages uh, in, in the early part of, of the 2010s when the North Sea looked like it was in danger of becoming uneconomic because of, uh, because of low energy prices. So I think once you, once you have got an appeal to government for support in one case, it's quite hard to then argue against uh, a windfall tax in another case.
0: I want to come back to the windfall taxes, but first, Katie, James talks about some of the support there. And if you are one of the 8 million most vulnerable households in the UK, you're looking at a direct cash top up of over £1,000 this year, I think it's roughly £1,200. That's roughly on par with a Joe Biden stimulus check. Now if we go back to February, one of the criticisms against the Chancellor was that his, his support package wasn't going far enough. He said at the time, I can't do everything to ease these burdens, I can just play a role. He said again today, I can't take away all the pain, I can just play a role. How long is it before we, you think we hear requests for more funding, more support packages or do you think this will actually um, address many of the criticisms that people have had over the past few months?
2: Look, I'm sure there'll be calls today when it comes to requests for more help, because as you say, um, this is not going to completely take away the pain. There are lots of people who are still going to be struggling. And therefore, I think you will see people saying, oh, does this go far enough? Does it go in the right way? Is this the best way to do it? Um, It's not just energy bills, which are one of the problems here in terms of people's personal finances. Look at how. Food prices are expected to soar, um, but I think in terms of, I suppose, uh, where Rishi Sunak goes from here, I think he was definitely vulnerable to the criticism that when it comes to the worst off in society, that not enough had been provided in the spring statement, and you had Rishi Sunak saying, "Well, I couldn't do much on terms of a universal credit uplift, even if I wanted to, because of the computer system." And I said, "Is that a real reason, the computer system? Um, but I think you're seeing them trying to address that, and that is the main thrust today when it comes to the packages. I think there is a general issue for Rishi Sunak, which goes back also to the windfall tax, which is amongst Tory MPs, there is no, I think, universal agreement uh, of what Rishi Sunak should be doing. So there will be some Tory MPs pretty aghast at the windfall tax. They think it is unconservative. They are ideologically opposed. It could be a slippery slope. What does this do uh, in terms of the message you're sending business? There are others who are very pro-windfall tax um, and have been pushing for it. It's probably, I would say, more MPs than not um, that support... And the Tory party support a windfall tax um, often the quieter ones broadly because they want to look as though they're doing something on cost of living um, and and therefore I think Rishi Sunak is going to face critic criticism no matter what he does and that includes within his own party
0: James Rishi Sinek has been very keen to note that there's going to be a sunset clause in this windfall tax legislation so that when oil prices return to something more historically normal the windfall tax goes. He's been keen to note that it's rather generous, although that feels like a strange word to use when we're talking about tax hikes, on investment, that the more a business decides to invest back into the company, uh, the less tax they'll be paying through this levy. Um, regardless, though, does this not open a Pandora's box? Uh, what about the supermarkets that did very well in lockdown? What about the streaming services? If government realizes that its tax rate can actually be quite successful in getting the money into the Treasury's coffers, why would they stop at energy companies? And what would it mean if it weren't a Tory government in charge, but perhaps a Labour government or coalition that would be very keen to go further on some kind of tax rate?
1: So I I think something distinguishes uh, the energy companies from the supermarkets, which is, yes, in the the, the supermarkets during the pandemic, some of the competition rules were relaxed to allow them to to coordinate more in terms of keeping shops, stocks and the like. But the supermarkets sector in the UK is highly competitive. It doesn't come to government for support or bailouts or or, or, uh, other kinds of forms of financial assistance. And I mean, that makes it a very different category. Uh, And I mean, I think that is the distinction here.
0: And Katie, what does this mean for the chancellor professionally and on some level personally? Uh, He became known throughout the COVID pandemic as the one who was going to give away all the money, give all the handouts. Uh, This is another form of handout, although admittedly times have been a lot tougher and he's also had to be the person holding back those cash splashes. Uh, Do you think that this is going to be good for brand Rishi as it's so often called?
2: I think, if I'm being honest, it's just a bit too hard to tell in the sense that I think uh, the cost of living crisis means that so many people feel as though they are finding it hard to make ends meet. That lots of people think, that, well, finally you're doing something, even if they welcome it. Uh, and therefore I don't think this is going to lead to you know a big bout of Rishi mania. Um, and in, and also on one side, you've got um, plenty on the Tory side who are questioning uh, whether this is the right policy. I think it's interesting if you look at the number 10, number 11 dynamic, because over the past week or so, quite... Uh, uh, publicly, a debate was playing out where you had senior members of Boris Johnson's team, figures such as David Canzini, one of his deputy chiefs of staff, um, arguing against this, which is why we had quite a strange situation when we look back on it of an Opposition Day debate where Tory MPs voted against the idea of a windfall tax. Now, the Tories will say, oh, well, it was a slightly different windfall tax, there weren't the details that we have now, but I think it does just reflect how the government itself has not been able to decide on this course of action very easily. Um, but I think if we're looking for the big winner when it comes to today's announcements, it's probably Labour. Labour's clearest policy, I think, has been a windfall tax. They have called for it repeatedly, and you can say this is uh, different. What it does for investment, make those arguments. But at the end of the day, when Labour are trying to say to voters, "You can trust us on the economy," one of their biggest weak points, um, historically, if you look at recent elections particularly, um, is they can say, "Well, the Tories use our ideas." I think that definitely plays into this idea that uh, Labour are not not this outlier on the economy which the Tories often want to depict them as when it comes to election campaigns.
0: Katie and James, thanks for joining me. In this week's cover piece, Spectator contributor Anne Williams writes from Taiwan. He says the country is learning lessons from the war in Ukraine. To explain, Anne joins me now alongside Emma Ashford at the Scowcroft Centre. Anne, you write in your cover piece for The Spectator magazine this week that Taiwan has been watching the war in Ukraine very closely. Tell us why.
3: I think because it's very close to home. A number of people said to me, geographically, it's very, it's a very long way away, but in every other respect, it's chillingly close. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. They see in this idea of a, of a big, powerful, um, neighbor wanting to quash a democracy, um, driven by an idea of restoring empire, um, and also, one which has partnered with China across across the Strait, they see a lot in common with that. And I think that you've seen a grey war play out against Taiwan for a number of years now. And for a lot of Taiwanese, this was almost background noise. Yes, there were cyber attacks, there was dis- disinformation, there was intimidation by jets and ships, but it was always seen as something they kind of lived with and... A lot of people didn't think it would ever come to open hostilities, and I think it's come home to them. It's been a real wake-up call, uh, the violence, the invasion. Uh, in Ukraine, particularly as it seemed to be, to a lot of people, irrational. A lot of people thought Putin wouldn't do it in the same way a lot of people have been saying that she wouldn't do it because it's not a rational thing to do. And I think a lot of people are saying, well, she and Putin, they're on the same wavelength. They're not necessarily rational actors.
4: Hmm.
0: Emma, there are now comparisons between Russia's attack on Ukraine and a potential attack on Taiwan by the Chinese Communist Party. How do you think the two situations might be different?
5: Yeah so i mean obviously as ian said there there are these parallels um but the parallels are mostly at this sort of large strategic geopolitical sense um that there are also some some major differences that i think are worth bearing in mind here um and one is that even prior to february 24th of this year um ukraine and russia were actually engaged in a conflict right so this conflict goes back at least as far as 2014 there's been this disputed territory in the east of ukraine Um, In contrast, the Chinese Communist Party's approach to Taiwan in recent decades, um, while they are clearly still trying to exert influence and pull Taiwan further into their sort of sphere of influence, it has been primarily economic. Um, And so, you know, it would be a a shift, I think, if China were to start pursuing military options towards Taiwan. Um, And that's not how Russia has been approaching this problem. So, So there are these differences. And I think we should be cautious we can certainly draw lessons from the Ukraine case but we should be cautious about assuming they are exactly the same and what do you make of Emma's points and I'm also wondering if you could tell us a bit about the
0: importance of Taiwan to Xi
3: I think that the recovery, as he would put it, of Taiwan is very much central to his rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, his his broader ideology, his broader sense of the Chinese dream. And and here there are parallels with, with Putin's Ruski Mir, with his idea of the Russian world. These are both imperial visions of the restoration of empire. Um, an important difference, of course, is that Taiwan is an island which makes any sort of invasion, any military operation, far more challenging than it does across a land border. But I think one of the things that was most striking to me in my visit to, to Taiwan was how people were taken by the resilience of the Ukrainians and how they managed to push back against a far better equipped and apparently stronger force. Now, a lot of people see parallels there between China and Taiwan in that there has been around for a while in Taiwan this uh, military strategy, asymmetric, sometimes dubbed the porcupine strategy, which emphasised the use of smarter technology, the use of smaller, mobile, more resilient arms, whether they're smart mines or drones or precision missiles. And this debate has been going on for some time and it's been urged and pushed along by the Americans. But suddenly they're seeing this in action in Ukraine. Suddenly they're seeing an asymmetric war. Suddenly they're seeing what resilience can do and how strong the Western backing has been, which came as a shock, I think, in Beijing and also a surprise in Taiwan. So this is shifting the debate quite considerably in Taiwan over the future of their own defence.
0: And Emma, Joe Biden made a big intervention this week, seemingly committing the US to defending Taiwan militarily. How does this change things?
5: Yeah, so this is about the third or fourth time that Joe Biden has made this exact gaffe, um, you know, misstating uh, the US government's position on Taiwan policy. And I think at this point, you know, you really can't call it a gaffe. This is clearly what the president believes. Um, I I think this is quite worrying um, because the US has long pursued a policy of strategic ambiguity. Towards Taiwan, that is to say, we we sell the Taiwanese arms. Sometimes we even intervene if we feel the Chinese are getting too aggressive. If you remember the Taiwan Strait incident back in the nineteen nineties, where the Clinton administration sailed some carriers through the Taiwan Strait as a signal to Beijing. Um, but we've always maintained that ambiguity and that flexibility. Um, and I think you know if the administration is indeed moving towards some form of clarity that the US will, in fact, actually defend Taiwan. um, I think that's a little worrying, because it shifts us from a world where we're talking about porcupine strategies, arming the Taiwanese, deterring the Chinese. Um, It shifts us much more into a world where we're talking about setting ourselves up for a potential US-China conflict, um, rather than this more sort of hands-off arming approach that we've taken in Ukraine.
0: Ian, do you think Biden was wise to uh, say yet again that he was uh, going to back the uh, the Taiwanese with with the US military? And how have these remarks been received in Taiwan and indeed China?
3: Well, he may have actually inadvertently added to the ambiguity (coughs) because of course he, he, uh, he rode back somewhat or the White House rode back somewhat on it as they have done in the past. But certainly in Taiwan, They're very cautious about comments like this, because, and numerous conversations I had, they're really stressing that they need to be able to demonstrate that they are willing and able to defend themselves. Um, They're aware that there have been observers in the States that say, why should we commit further to the defense of Taiwan when they appear not to be sufficiently willing to come to their own defense? And I think one of the things that's emerged from the Ukraine crisis is a sense of civic pride that has emerged. Polls showing that record numbers of youngsters are willing to stand up and defend their own country. And I think that in pushing them about what Biden has been saying and the American position, I think privately they would welcome it. But publicly, they're very cautious about that and they want to be seen to be capable of looking after themselves. And I think that one of their greatest means of defence, as they see it, is in fact their democratic system, because they would argue that it's very difficult for a country which shares the values of Western democracy and is so critical to international supply chains, high tech chips. um, It would be very difficult for other Western democracies to ignore any hostility against them. But whether that is military intervention or whether it is more Ukraine-style support with an international coalition imposing sanctions and providing arms and backing, um, that's something really that they that they, they wouldn't really, or they prefer not to be drawn on.
0: Emma, the US had been shifting its focus away from Europe and the Middle East to the Indo-Pacific. But does the war in Ukraine potentially put the brakes on that shift? Or do Biden's comments about Taiwan suggest the US is going to try to do it all?
5: You know, I, I think it's notable that the administration is coming back to talking about Asia. Um, I think it, it may have been yesterday, actually, it was 90 days since the, the invasion of Ukraine. Um, and I think it's notable that we have seen this resurgence. The administration is now talking about Asia. They released their their uh, Indo-Pacific economic strategy, such as it is. Um, and so, you know, th- there is this clear determination within the administration to continue focusing on China, despite everything that's happened in Europe in the last couple of months. However, I think, you know, that is limited. Um, because there are limits on what the US is going to be able to do so long as we are maintaining 100,000 troops in Eastern Europe, um, so long as we are, you know, spending much of our sort of military industrial capital in arming Ukraine. Um, And so, you know, I I do think the administration at some point is going to have to make a choice um, about whether they're going to prioritize um, a focus on Asia, or whether like the Obama administration before them, they're basically going to get sucked into another conflict and they're just going to leave everything in Asia on the back burner again.
0: And Anne, what about the lessons that the West is learning? Uh, Russia's attack on Ukraine has made many people worried about food supply uh, and getting wheat storages out of Ukraine. You write in your piece this week that 90% of the world's top end microchips are made in Taiwan. Is the US, is the West more generally thinking about stockpiling, thinking about preparing for potential future conflicts that limit their access to supply?
3: I think they are doing that. I mean, it's interesting that there's a joke that's doing the rounds in Taiwan, that if the missiles start coming in, where's the safest place to hide? And the answer comes a chip factory, um, because they would, they're too valuable to be attacked. Well, I'm not sure about that. But certainly, I think that in the last two years, um, the world has woken up to the strategic importance of of Taiwan, particularly to the chip industry, and particularly in, in top end chips. And in fact, some of those factories are being moved. There's as, as, as a new one moving to the states. They're looking at Europe, Japan. But again, Taiwan sees it as an important part of its defence. And they are in no hurry to move their top end chip production out of Taiwan because they do see it as a shield, as a means of defense alongside the island's democracy.
4: Hmm.
0: And my last question to you, uh, since COVID-19 hit, the rhetoric from both Republicans and Democrats in the States on China has become increasingly hawkish. Do you expect that to stay the same over the next few years? And if we were to see the CCP make its moves on Taiwan, uh, do you think that they would unite in a similar way that they've done around Ukraine?
5: I do think that we're going to see a continuation of the more hawkish rhetoric in the states. Um, You know, the the Secretary of State is going to make a speech um, over the next few days in which he's going to outline a strategy for the administration on China um, that the administration itself has characterized as a continuation of Trump's policies towards China. Um, There is very little daylight between Republicans and Democrats on this question. Um, It's mostly um, a question of degree, Right. To what extent are they going to engage in trade wars versus trying to open up trade in the region? To what extent are they going to engage in direct military alliances versus something like the Quad that's more hands off? So this is all a question of degree, and I I do think that that is going to continue, um, for the foreseeable future. Um, where we are more likely to see movement, um, between the parties is in fact on the questions of European security. You know, we've seen a large block in the Republican side of the island congress talking about you know dialing down support for ukraine focusing on asia Um, and so i think actually it's going to be in non-asian theaters that we're going to see the change in u.s foreign policy over the next few years
0: emma and ann thanks for joining me in the upcoming women with balls episode katie ball speaks to Frances haugen the facebook whistleblower haugen quit the company last year and took with her thousands of internal documents The files she alleges show Facebook knew its products were damaging to teenagers' mental health and were fomenting ethnic violence in countries like Ethiopia. Here's a preview of their discussion.
2: Now, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, you are a whistleblower. So, at what point then um, you're obviously becoming very uncomfortable with the things you're seeing? Mm-hmm. You've been moved off of this, um, and I've, I would presume from what you're saying that when you were moved off, were you frustrated to be moved off.
4: Well, I, I that 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 wasn't why I came forward. I, my, yeah. my decision to come forward happened a full year later. So, and, and in in some ways, we got escalated onto you know, in some ways, a just as scary a thing, right? Like when misinformation is targeted at people like police, like we don't want the people carrying guns, or in the United States, the police carry guns. You don't want the people carrying guns living with a different reality than what is our our shared reality. Um, uh, so I, I didn't feel bad when we got moved onto it. It's just It was an example of how dynamic things are at Facebook. Um, the moment that I realized Facebook needed help Right, that it wasn't going to be able to solve these problems alone. Like it needed help to solve these problems together. Was um, about a month, a little less than a month after the U.S. 2020 election, uh, Facebook announced we're dissolving our civic integrity team. So this is the parent team that I was part of. So I worked on civic misinformation under civic integrity, and a little less than a month afterwards. Uh, they came out and said, you know, your work is so important that we're going to integrate you into all these other places in the company. And at Facebook, that's not how reorgs work, right? Like your team either eats other teams or your team is eaten by other teams. Um, and I don't think I was the only one that felt that way because the team that I got moved on to, every single product manager on the team quit in the same six-week span about six weeks later. Not six weeks, six months later. Um, so I, I wasn't the only one that left about the same time. Um, but the, the reason why I was like, oh my goodness, like this is a problem was Facebook's bar for success was that there wasn't riots for 20, for the U S 2020 election, right? We still were facing genocide problems. We still were facing the algorithms giving the most reach, the most extreme ideas, but Facebook was like, oh, like we, we passed this crisis point. We don't, we don't need these folks anymore. And because they dissolved civic integrity, there was no one around to form the war room to turn the safety systems back on before January 6th. And at 5 p.m. on Eastern time, on January 6th, the whole list of safety features. So this is not, this is not censorship. This is things like how much should you amplify live video? Right, like Facebook um, regularly has a problem with people committing suicide on live video or killing other people on live video. Like Christchurch in New Zealand was filmed on live video broadcast on live video um you know the kinds of safety things that were off at 5 p.m on january 6th were were things like should you amplify video live video 850 times like more than it would have earned otherwise probably not if you can't control it but because they got rid of civic integrity no one was there to actually you know pull you know raise the red flag and say we need to act
2: so when did you, is that when you that was an insight yeah
4: and um, I, it took me a while to think through, like, how to do it um, because, I, you, know, um, you know, I was working on counter-espionage by that point. Like I said, you get thrown around in different spots. Um, the last eight months I was at, 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 um, at Facebook, I worked within the threat intelligence work. And um, so I'm working on counter-espionage. So I was thinking very carefully as a data scientist, like, how would I look for myself if I were like trying to find someone who was doing this. And so it took me a long time to figure out a plan that I felt confident. in.
2: And were you able to seek advice from anyone or not? Because what you're working on is so confidential. You're quite, it's actually quite like almost a solely decision.
4: Um, I had had, I had had a bunch of time during 2020 to talk to my parents. Cause I lived with my parents during COVID about um, I, the things that I was seeing at work. And to talk through like, what might I do? And so by the time I decided to act, I'd had lots of time to become okay with the idea of acting. So the only people I, I talked to about it in great depth were my parents. Um I, and I tried to reach out to um uh, I'm trying to decide whether or not to name and shame them. I reached out to a large tech advocacy group, which will remain nameless to protect the guilty, and and told them uh very early on, so um, back during the Iowa caucuses, I, I tried to talk to them about like, what I was seeing. And, um, and they, because, because back then, the conversation wasn't about how do we fix the algorithms? How do we look at the product choices that Facebook has made that have caused the most extreme content to get the most reach? Because the only frame of reference at that point was the frame of reference that Facebook gave. You know, they said the only things we can do to keep people safe are censorship. Uh, that tech advocacy group was not willing to help me at that time because they're like well even if the public knew about these things all they would do is censor them
2: and um and so i i i I did have to do it on my own so you make the decision uh you do it and then what happens is there a point where i I imagine if it's during covid are you working from home at this time Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. so it's not like you leave the office for the for the last time yeah (laughs) Um, uh, what starts to happen after you uh you know share the information
4: uh, and the so things things stayed very quiet for quite a long time so it was only right in the lead up to the uh first article being published with the wall street journal that my lawyers started talking to me about like you know do you want to be publicly like like you should think really hard about coming out publicly
2: and you stopped working for facebook at
4: yes yeah. So i stopped working for facebook back in may yeah. and um and the first article came out in september And, um, the, I, my, most people aren't aware of this, but like part of the reason why the Ukrainian whistleblower for Trump's impeachment stayed anonymous was because his lawyer, who happened to be my lawyer, um, sat and called every major media outlet in the United States over and over again for weeks saying if this guy's name leaks and he gets assassinated because there's people calling for his death right now. If you out him, we're gonna we're gonna make sure the blood is on your hands. And my lawyer was just really blunt with me on being like, you don't have that stick. Like they're gonna hunt for your identity. And guess what? Facebook knows your identity. Like Facebook could out you. They could try to discredit all these all these disclosures by painting you some really negative light. Um, and so that late in that summer, I had to make a decision on whether or not to come out. And um, based on the information that I had at the time. I decided it was safer to control the point at which I entered the public dialogue.
2: And at that point, um what do you find uh, the public reaction to be? Were you ready for the scrutiny that comes with it or, hmm. um...
4: um I've had a it's so funny like um I've been incredibly lucky. Like I know how hard it's been for um, like, uh, for Snowden or for reality winner or like Chelsea Manning, like I know, I know how hard it's been for people who have, who have whistleblown on the federal government. Um, there is not that level of uh, allegiance or goodwill towards Facebook. And, um, I think that's why, um, like I don't even get sent mean messages on my DMS. Like I always say, like I leave my DMS open Like, if you want to be mean to me, you can, I do respond, but I usually ask you, could you tell me more? Um, uh, but people, I think it's, I, I've had a, a a very, a very fortunate emergence into the public light because people have been very supportive.
2: Um you mentioned other whistleblowers and obviously going after yeah. the government. I mean in Stone's case obviously having to leave yeah, the country. I know. Um have, have you spoken to any other whistleblowers? I mean, I wonder if there's any like a bit of a solidarity club. Uh
4: when I when I came out, a whole bunch of um other tech whistleblowers all like reached out to me on Twitter. And so that was that was cute. And um and I I I feel like I've had a chance to um pay some of that support forward because uh the reality is like not all whistleblowers accept um like assistance so like i've been very lucky that um you know the 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 legal aid group i work with um you know they were amazing guides in terms of supporting me in being a whistleblower um but there are other whistleblowers who feel like they have to do it all on their own and um i've been grateful that i've also been able to like coach and support other whistleblowers and say like actually you know, we're, we're not superheroes, like, we're all humans, and like, you know, accepting help doesn't mean you're weak, it just means, like, we all we
2: all need a little help. Um, now, since, obviously, you um, blew the whistle on Facebook, they faced lots of scrutiny, mm-hmm. um, and I think lots of negative publicity, um, but I think just for the end of this point, moving to the present day, I wondered, I mean, first, do you think Facebook have learned any lessons yet? Mm. And then I want to ask you about the online safety bill. So we have seen some changes in Facebook already, even
4: without mandated changes. So the Digital Services Act just passed in Europe. And there are many changes that are going to be coming down the pipeline as a result of that. But even before being forced to do things like transparency, um, Facebook has uh, launched some things that show that they they have listened to at least some of the criticisms. So I'll give you an example. Uh, At any point in the last 10 years, they could have released parental controls on Instagram at any point right? People have been asking for parental controls forever. And, and these are things like saying, can you assign a, a time allowance to your kids? Because the reality is the kids that are most harmed by social media are the ones that uh, have um, a negative relationship with it and then end up doom scrolling at 2am, 3am, right? Where their anxiety pulls them to engage more, but at the same time, the content is making them more anxious. Um, time budgets are important for, for kid safety, um they didn't launch those until like two months ago like there weren't really parental controls till then um or facebook has made some efforts to um try to support more languages for its safety systems like they announced in december that they were re-architecting how they did those so they could try to cover more languages
2: and um, online safety bill currently going through parliament I recently actually had nadine doris on this podcast the culture secretary who's leading the legislation. Um, what do you make of it in terms of, I suppose, uh, fairly briefly for our listeners, because obviously it's a very ex- wide bill, but I just wondered um, what you think is, is good that it's doing and where you think it actually is potentially lacking.
4: Um, I think one of the places where, uh, you know, the UK is really establishing a reputation around is, is it, it is very thoughtful about the rights of children. And like safety by design and, and uh, making sure that, that kid, or kids are safer, at least, online. Because the reality is the internet was not designed for children. And right now the people paying the highest costs, at least in our societies, for um, uh, social media are, are, are children. Um, some of the places where it's a little weaker are things like uh, there's a large focus on content versus on um, um, focusing as much on systems. So the Digital Services Act out of Europe focuses more on, you know, um, making sure there's transparency from day one. So that means uh, academics, researchers, the regular gain access to data from the start. The online safety bill says, uh, you know, we're going to do a two-year period. Ofcom's going to do a two-year period where they're going to ask the question, should we have access to data? We've known for 10 years we need access to data. Like We, 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 we would never trust an oil company like, if, let's imagine some kids were sick downwind from an oil derrick. We would never turn to that oil company and be like, "Why do you think? Why do you think these kids are sick?" And if they were like, "Have you seen the clouds in the sky? Have you talked to a meteorologist yet?" Maybe it's maybe it's the clouds. No, no, no. no. We would send an environmental scientist out there, who would test the air, they would test the soil, they would test the water, and they'd come back and be like, "No, like the oil derrick is like burning off this stuff, and there's a byproduct in it." Like we went we wouldn't ask the person committing the harm to let us know what the solutions are. We would ask our own questions and we would do our own research. And until we have access to data, we cannot act independently. So the online safety bill has to move from saying, should we have access to data? To saying, how will we have access to data? And instead of it taking two years to to start giving access, it should take three months. Because the online, the Digital Service Act is gonna have data on day one starting in January
2: is the data uh, almost uh, looking at um how things are targeted and in that sense I that mean, would be yeah. one thing yeah
4: right so it's, it's a huge it's a it's 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 things like what content gets the most promotion right uh where are the biases where are the biases in the censorship systems right now we have no idea how these things work but Facebook's own documents say things like 75 percent of counter-terrorism content in some languages is getting labeled as terrorism content and taken down we need transparency to see how these systems work. Another place where I think the bill could be stronger is right now it's allowing the, um, uh, I think it's like the, the secretary, of, it's, it's allowing a minister, an elected minister to say what content should be taken down instead of having an independent, having Ofcom do it. Ofcom, Ofcom is an independent regulator. We don't want to have an elected official who might have their thumb on the scale deciding what can and can't be said. We want the independent regulator to have that role.
2: Yeah, you mentioned that and I think one of the criticisms that has been aired in The Spectator but also in Parliament is concerns over legal but harmful mm. and how that can be interpreted, how it could move and whether actually it could be a threat to free speech in the sense that um, you could say, if you could argue that something could be harmful but it's not actually illegal, you can start to see how... Um, Well, when Nadine Doris was on the um, podcast, she was saying, as to your point, well, actually, you know, some Twitter pylons would be okay. So a Twitter pylon about her would be okay. um, But a Twitter pylon was racism would not be okay. But I think lots of people think, well, in terms of the legal harmful side, you're going to bring more in. I wonder, what do you think about that?
4: I think there's – when we look at – you know, we said before about the greatest harms to, like, say, kids – a lot of the stuff that is harming kids is totally legal content, right? Um, one of the things that Facebook's own documents say is, you know, we like to think that Facebook is a mirror. Like when you pull people, people say, oh, Facebook's just showing me what, what what's representative. Um, in reality, Facebook is an amplifier, right? You can take a brand new Instagram account with no friends, no interests, and search for something like healthy eating, and just click on the content they give you, you know, follow the hashtag suggested, and get taken to pro-anorexia content within two weeks. That kind of thing, an algorithm that pushes kids actively from just an innocuous thing like healthy recipes to pro-anorexia and self-harm content, because both those things are what Facebook found, we need to make sure there's some space in there where we can still make sure that those things get captured. And so I think transparency is a good complement, where it's one of these things where right now we don't know what content they take down or leave up, We should have an ability to see what's going on. And then we can put pressure and democratic accountability on the system. And finally, Rod Little writes in this magazine about his attention span.
0: Games like Bubble Shooter are ruining his ability to focus, he says. Should we be more concerned about how much time we spend on our phones? Rod joins me now. Rod, thanks for joining me on Spectator TV. In In the magazine this week, you write about your attention deficit. Talk us through your problem. (laughs)
5: <laughs> it's,
6: it's, it's so good to unburden myself to you. Uh, I, I've just noticed that, that I've become uh, a lot lazier in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, I don't think it's laziness in my part. I think it's uh, uh, just the way I am and, and the pragmatic way of getting along. But I've noticed that uh, I take far too long, spend far too much time online doing fatuous, inane things talking to idiots, uh, delivering platitudes via WhatsApp or, or, or the boomers uh, forum, Facebook, uh, <laughs> instead of doing stuff which is intellectually taxing uh, and in the end more rewarding. And um, I, I, this, this, came to, this came to my attention some time ago, but then I read a very good book about it by uh, uh, Johan Harry, uh, the journalist. Uh, I'll show it to you. It's here. Uh, I've got it. There you are, you see. He'll, he'll um,
0: appreciate that plug.
6: Yeah, yeah appreciate... He'll
0: appreciate that plug for his book. He will appreciate
6: that plug. Uh, plugging a Lefty. Uh, uh, it's called Stolen Focus and uh, Why You Can't Pay Attention Anymore. And uh, it seems to me that he's got it right. I mean, I'm not sure that Yohan has got... The answer to it uh, in that yeah you know, it is on the on the far left and believes that the best way to deal with this is to abolish capitalism uh, and various other things which and you know stop global warming, uh, stop airborne pollution, and all this kind of stuff, but where he is brilliant is on the analysis of where we are now with our attention deficit disorders uh, uh, and which which seems to be a kind of universal thing, and what if, what he, the, the point that he makes is that it 's not simply. About self-discipline. Now, I think he underplays uh, the the role of self-discipline a little, but he's very compelling on the degree to which the t- the tech firms uh, compel us to be on their sites, you know. And also, of course, when I look at my daughter, uh, when we say to her, "Why are you on your phone all the time?" Well, all her work is now on her phone. Right, at school right. so so she is tied to that phone uh, and uh, it's it's i think it's a real problem
0: are they compelling us to be on their websites or do we just enjoy it a bit too much i mean i find that if i move the apps on my phone around and sort of hide them from myself i can be off them for quite some time um you know it's, it's not that i need to be on them but i i like being on them so i have to make a conscious effort
4: not to be
6: yeah, you might be kidding yourself, though. Much as um, I was, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, so for
4: example,
6: you know, uh, when I when I get up in the morning, I do a couple of crosswords, two or three crosswords, uh, the cryptic kind, uh, and I tell myself that I'm doing this because it 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 uh, it enlivens my brain, gets my brain working properly. Uh, halfway through a piece, I'll stop and play some fatuous games such as Bubble Shooter or Luxor, um, and and I tell myself that I need to do this because I need to bit of breathing space to clear my mind so that it's ready for the next part. It's all bollocks. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, and then there's Facebook. You see, you see an awful lot of the stuff, an awful lot of the reason we return to these things is it, because, it, it, because it gives us uh, um, a, a chemical satisfaction. So almost everything I do online, when I do it, is I am rewarded um, uh, uh, by people telling me how brilliant or adorable I am. Now I know obviously that I am brilliant and adorable, but it is very nice to be told it uh, repeatedly. And you get told that by hearts or upticks on Facebook. And then when I do a Wordle in in, in when when I do Wordle in three goes, and it tells me how impressive I am. Uh, when I complete a Bubble Shooter in uh, 1.6 million, it tells me, "Wow, Rod, you you've." Totally rock, and my serotonin levels increase. I feel a sense of well being uh, and a kind of messianic fervor for myself, Uh, and that's what—that's one of the ways in which the internet companies get you, uh, get you hooked. It—it is a chemical addiction, you know. You crave this.
0: That you actually need more affirmations in your daily life from real people, or do you actually prefer to hear them from your app? and from some from some voice coming from your phone?
6: I think everybody needs uh, affirmation. Uh, I don't think I'm especially needy. Perhaps I am. Uh, but I think everybody needs that. And I think the, the, the high-tech companies play on it because... Uh, it's something which draws you back and draws you back. And Yowen's very good as well on, on the various other stuff they do, which I don't really want to go into because it's complex, on the way in which these high-tech firms pull you back in. Uh, but, you know, just to give you an example of what's happened to us, our attention span, <laughs> its it's a great story, this. Our attention span in 2000, in the year 2000, was 12 seconds <laughs> okay which isn't great it's now 8.25 seconds or at least uh, that was 20, 2019 so it's probably gone down from there as well we now have a shorter attention span than a goldfish um, similarly uh, you can look at twitter trends and how long people take on Twitter trends, and how long those trends last. So, for example, uh, in 2013, uh, the average Twitter trend would last 17.5 hours. These days, it lasts 11.9 hours. Um, So lots of things are happening. One of the things that's happening is we're getting more and more information into us, more and more content. Uh, And therefore, we spend... we, we Spend less time on each bit of content, if you see what I mean, because there's so much of it. But the other thing is that, and this is the thing which I find the, the most debilitating, and the most debilitating for our culture, is that, of course, uh, everything is truncated online into the sort of conversations you might have on WhatsApp, TikTok, or Twitter in that they are very, very, very brief conversations. There is no room for nuance. There is no room for context. And so you never get a deep understanding of things, and other people, when you say things, misunderstand them. You know, this has happened to me plenty of times. Uh, uh, The the, the most uh, uh, salutary to me was when I wrote a piece satirizing the government's Uh, 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 agonies over when it should call an election to make sure that the right kind of people would be there to vote for it. Uh, The satire included um, uh, a line about doing it on a day when Muslims couldn't vote for religious reasons. Uh, And this went berserk in the Twitter sphere. Uh, Lidl says that Muslims shouldn't, be, Muslims shouldn't be allowed to vote. Uh, when I was saying, in a, in a sense, precisely the opposite of that, because I was being satirical. And if you'd had the rest of the piece in context, you'd have understood that. So, you know, it, it, it's, it, it hurts understanding, it stops us understanding things.
0: Rod, I think um, a lot of our watchers and readers will want to know if you struggle with your attention span when you're writing. Do you find that to be a fluid process in which you can sit down and bash a whole column out? Uh, Or do you find that you're distracted even when you're writing your columns?
6: No, I'm lucky enough. Actually, when I'm writing my column, it's not too bad. Uh, I I just get through it because I love writing Uh, and I I find it reasonably easy to write. so no that's not a problem but once the column's written how other people take it is a problem you know that really is a problem and it's a problem for our political discourse generally as well i think
0: rod thanks for joining spectator tv that's it for this week once again we're delighted that can't accord genuity wealth management is sponsoring the week in 60 minutes Accord will provide the expertise you need to build your wealth with confidence. You can visit kendowealth.com to find out more. And don't forget to subscribe to The Spectator's YouTube channel. Just click the subscribe button at the bottom of this video and tap the bell icon to make sure you never miss an episode. Thanks again for watching and do join us again next week.